Good morning, Christ Central Church. I hope you all had a happy Easter. Uh, no doubt I wish, as I'm sure you do as well, that we could have enjoyed it together in person, face to face. But I am hopeful that the good news of the resurrection gave life to your weary souls nonetheless. This morning we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Psalms entitled, Hear Our Cry. And I realize that many of you probably haven't spent much time in the Psalms, and so I want to begin by giving you a little introduction to the book. And the book of Psalms is a, a unique book in the Bible in that it is a book of music. Contrary to most of the Old Testament, the chapters of this book are not stories to be told, but rather songs to be sung. And I need to point out here that these are not your ordinary feel-good songs, but rather they are prayers put to music. They are intimate accounts of God's people crying out to him from the depths of their innermost being. Now the Psalms are, knowing now, excuse me, what the Psalms are, the question then arises, why are these most intimate prayers included in our Bible? And the answer is, as I hope you will soon discover for yourself, is that these songs, these prayers are tools for us on the journey of life. Almost like a, a walking stick on a, on a long hike. They exist to empower us to take another step, to journey on. They're travel songs, and by God's grace, they make the journey of life a little bit more manageable. But why now? Why should we as a church pull out this dusty old hymnal in this moment, in this season? I think there are two reasons why. The first is because we just finished a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book whose resounding message was all is vanity. <laughs> and therefore, church, we are in great danger of wallowing in misery, of stopping singing altogether. And so we need the Psalms right now to compel us to sing again. Having now seen that this life, uh, for what it really is, we need the Psalms to teach us how to sing in the midst of such great vanity. And the second reason why we need to study the Psalms right now is because COVID-19 is making it really hard for all of us to sing. It's as if this virus has, has placed noise-canceling headphones on all of us, and, and so we can't hear the tune anymore, and, and most of us aren't yet brave enough to sing a cappella. My hope is that over the next few weeks that all of us would learn some new travel songs, songs for us to sing as we march along, songs that bring healing to the sick, hope to the hopeless, faith to the faithless, and joy to the joyless. I invite you now, wherever you're at, to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we are looking at Psalm 3. This is God's word, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. 
I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, the words of life. We believe that your word is true and that through your word we encounter you, the living God. And so this morning we ask that you would speak to us, that you would allow me, your unworthy servant, to get out of your way so that we might encounter you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The more that I study the life of Jesus, the more that I realize that this man was far from ordinary. One of the most glaring examples of this fact is the story of Jesus asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. Are you familiar with this story? Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and somewhat abruptly he decides that it's time for them to cross over this body of water to the other side. And the text doesn't allude to this, but I think we have to imagine that the skies were a little ominous when Jesus made this request. And I'm quite sure that the disciples, many of whom were fishermen by trade and were well-versed on rough waters, were not really excited about this plan. But they obeyed nonetheless, and sure enough, as soon as they got out into the middle of this body of water, the storm that was once far off all of a sudden was right on top of them. Years ago, I had the unfortunate experience of coming very close to being caught in a boat in a storm. My family was taking what was supposed to be a sunset cruise aboard the Stars and Stripes, a retired America's Cup sailboat. And the trip began beautifully, wonderful voyage, but about halfway through, I noticed that the expressions on the faces of the crew began to shift. Long before I noticed the storm, the crew began scurrying around the ship as if they were back in the America's Cup again. And it was the look in their eyes that revealed everything. These expert sailors were scared to death. You see, they were scared because they knew that there was nothing they could do if we were still on the water when the storm hit. At that point, we'd be completely at the mercy of the sea. And I think it's this experience that causes me to so marvel at, at Jesus' maritime adventure. How could Jesus sleep at such a time as this? How was Jesus able to rest in the middle of a storm? Our text this morning is a song about a man who is experiencing quite possibly the greatest storm of his life. And yet in the midst of this storm, verse 5, it says that he was able to lay down and sleep. I wonder how many of you are right now in the greatest storm of your life. 
And if not the greatest of your life, no doubt this pandemic has created a sizable storm for all of us. Yet the promise of Psalm 3 to us is that we can find rest in the storm. That there is, in fact, an antidote for your anxious fears. And what we see in Psalm 3 is that there are three steps that we must take to achieve that peace that we long for in the face of the storm. Not so much a formula, but rather a posture towards life and towards God that offers us the peace that we so desire. And those three steps that we will be unpacking together this morning are, first, we must name our fears. Secondly, we must turn our gaze. And lastly, we must change our tune. The first step towards rest in the storm is that we have to name our fears. Psalm 3 was written by King David. And one of the hidden gems of this psalm is that we are given the circumstances around its composition. The subscript tells us that this psalm was written while David was fleeing from his son Absalom. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the life of David, this is referring to really the low point of David's life, the time when his son Absalom betrayed him, started a rebellion, and it became clear that Absalom was willing to do whatever it took to seize his father's throne, even if it meant killing his own dad. And so King David is forced to flee from his palace, from his home, and go into hiding. Can you imagine what this was like for David? Can you imagine the hurt, the shame, the, regret, the regrets that he was probably feeling? It would have been one thing if some foreign ruler came in to take over, but to be ousted by your own flesh and blood. This storm would have been overwhelming for any of us. But what does David do with all the fears and anxiety that he is feeling? What the text reveals is that the first thing he does is he names them. He lays his fears, each by name, in front of God. Verse 1 says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There are really two main fears that David voices here. First, he states that his enemy is too many, and he fears that they will defeat him. This is that on top of the surface fear, the fear of failure, of defeat, of death. But look again at verse 2, and you'll see that the second fear that he names is a little more under the surface and a good bit more weighty. He says, Many are saying of my soul there is no salvation for him in God. You see, David's clearly having a hard time putting this fear to words, and so somewhat sheepishly, he places this fear in the mouth of his opponents. He's saying, God, you know my enemies are saying that you aren't going to save me from this storm. And you know, God, I'm not, I'm not saying I believe them, but it's really hard not to in this moment. Church is not... Is that not the far greater fear? Not that our enemies will overwhelm us, not that we will be defeated, but that our God is in fact unable to rescue us. As Charles Spurgeon once said, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to the fear that there is no help for us in God. 
Church, what are the fears that you are facing right now? What are the things that you need to acknowledge, that you need to name to God? What are the things that deep down you worry God won't be able to rescue you from? No doubt this is a scary time for all of us. And the, the choice yet that we have to make is either to name these fears or to deny them and pretend like they don't exist. And I have to confess that I have felt a strong urge these past few weeks to, to numb out to deny my fears, to throw myself into Netflix or, or mindless games or alcohol or work, to grab hold of something to take my mind off all the scary things that flood my mind if I sit still long enough to let them, to grab hold of something that will give me some semblance of peace and enable me to cope at least for a moment. But the truth is, and we all know this to be true, that the only way to find a true and lasting peace, the peace that enabled Jesus to, to snore in the storm is to openly acknowledge, to name the fear and anxiety that we're all experiencing. Church, who else knows what is keeping you awake at night these days? And even more important than that, have you brought your anxious fears before your heavenly father? Because this is the first step in your journey towards peace in the storm. Which brings us now to the second step in fighting our anxious fears. We must turn our gaze. What's interesting is that in, in verse 3, after David has openly and honestly acknowledged his fears to God, he then abruptly turns his gaze away from his problems and towards something else. And here's where we see this delicate balance between openly acknowledging our fears and dwelling too much on our fears. Because the truth is, if, if we look too long at our enemies, our enemies seem to grow in size right before our eyes. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say over the past few weeks that they have started limiting the amount of time they spend watching the news. And the reason why is exactly what we are talking about. Because if you watch the news long enough, the coronavirus will become too big for you. It will begin to overwhelm you. And so we, we have to avert our eyes. There's this beautiful picture of this idea in Numbers chapter 13. You see, God had promised his people that he was going to give them a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And when they finally arrive at the land, they send 12 spies to go and check it out. And 10 of those spies come back and they say, no way, man. The enemy is too big. They're like giants and we're like grasshoppers. They will squish us like little bugs. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they bring back a very different report. In fact, they say the exact opposite. Verse 30, they say, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well and able to overcome it. So how do we explain the two different reports? And the answer is that I think the 10 spent too much time looking at their enemy. They dwelled too much on the object of their fear. And yet Joshua and Caleb, they took another approach. And don't miss this church. It's not that Joshua and Caleb refused to look at the enemy altogether. No, they went and spied with the other 10 and they saw the very same thing that the 10 saw. 
And yet after they saw the enemy, they turned their gaze towards something else. I want you to listen to the words of Joshua from chapter 14 and see if you can't pick up on what they turned their eyes to. He says, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Did you catch it? The pathway to peace in the storm is through turning our eyes away from our enemy and toward the face of God. As a parent of four children, I'm often invited to events where my children are to perform in some way, whether it be a sporting event or a school play or a dance recital. And in my house, there's often a lot of nerves heading into these performances. But something that I've, I've found rather humbling as a parent is that in all of these performances, as soon as my child comes on stage, they inevitably immediately begin looking for mine and Stacy's face. And up until they find our faces, they, they, they are full of anxiety and fear. But as soon as they find us, as soon as their eyes meet our faces, peace settles over them like a warm blanket in a cold winter night. If you've been joining us for midday prayer these past few weeks, you're aware that the prayer guide that we've been using is called Seeking God's Face. The title comes from another psalm by David, Psalm 27, where God literally commands David to seek his face. And the reason why God makes this command is because God knows that in the midst of the storm, that which most deserves our attention is not the storm, but rather his face. Look again at our text at how David seeks the face of God in the midst of this storm. Verse 4, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. You see, David is declaring here that in spite of the fact that when I look at my enemies, they seem too great for me, and yet I know that you, my Lord, are greater than my enemies. And then he begins to recount the character of God, the character that he has learned over the years through seeking God's face. He says, you are my shield, meaning God is his protector. He says, you are my glory, meaning God is his king. He says, you are the lifter of my head, meaning God is the antidote for his despondency, the only true source of hope in this life. He says, you are the one who answered me from your holy hill, meaning that God is not some far off uninterested being, but rather he is one who is near, who listens, who answers our cries. Church, when we, when we see the face of God, when we know and believe in the character of our God, although we might be in the middle of a storm, we know we are not at the mercy of the sea, but rather, as I mentioned a few weeks back, we remain confident that we are, in fact, in the palm of his hand. No doubt the application is clear. 
in order for you to find peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of coronavirus or whatever you are facing, you must look to the face of God. You must look to and trust in the character of God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. Now more than ever, we must turn off the news and we must pick up this book and be reminded of who God is. And when we do that, James Boyce rightly declares, we will see God's true great stature and our enemies will will not grow, but will shrink to manageable proportions. No doubt the coronavirus is something that we are right to be afraid of. But let us not lose sight of the fact that this virus pales in comparison to the might and the power of our great God. Which brings us to our third and final step that we must take and our pursuit of peace in the midst of the storm. And that is we must change our tune. What do I mean? You see, when we're willing to openly and honestly acknowledge our fears to God, and when we see God's face and we're reminded of his character, what inevitably happens is that we begin to sing a whole new genre of music. No longer do we sing the blues, but now we begin to sing something that sounds much more like the old African spirituals. Because, you know, the difference between the blues and the African spiritual is that although both are written from the heart of the storm, the blues music knows not how to anchor itself in the salvation that is to come. But at the heart of every African spiritual is that although sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. There's a trust that no matter what the circumstances might be, we have a shelter in the storm. Look again with me at our text. Verse 4 says that David cried aloud to the Lord and that he knew the Lord answered his cry and then he laid down and went to sleep. Don't miss this, church. David went to sleep long before God delivered him from his troubles. When David is writing this, he's still on the run. His son Absalom has yet to be defeated. In fact, in writing this psalm, David has no tangible evidence that he is ever going to get out of this storm. Nothing at all is pointing to his deliverance. And yet somehow, verse 3, he stops singing the blues and instead sings this African spiritual and then he lays down and he goes to sleep. All the while, the storm is raging all around him. How can this be? Verse 8 is the answer. See, David knows deep down, deep in the innermost part of himself, that he is safe because his salvation belongs to the Lord. Church, do you believe that even in the midst of this storm, whatever storm you are facing, that your salvation belongs to God? I have a vivid memory of a time in my childhood when I found rest in the midst of a storm, peace in the face of great anxiety. I was in high school and I was given the opportunity to go out to California and to climb what the mountain climbing world calls a 14er. A 14er, quite simply, is a mountain with a summit greater than 14,000 feet above sea level. And in order to climb this mountain, we were required to split up into teams of four, three rookies and one guide. And I was scared enough as it is, but my fears were greatly magnified when we did our fall training. We had to practice 
how to handle the situation if and when someone on our team fell. You see, because there was a certain point on this climb where we were going to have to traverse an ice-covered face, and apparently it was highly likely that one of us would fall on, the, on this portion of the climb. And the fall procedure including, included, at this time, the four of us connecting ourselves to one another by a single rope. And each of us was giving, given an ice axe to carry. And what we were taught to do, what we practiced doing, was when someone fell, the other three people were to immediately lay down on the side of the mountain and dig their ice axe into the mountain as hard as they could. And what we were told would happen is that because we were connected by this rope, that the one who fell would be caught by this rope that was anchored to the three other climbers who were anchored to the mountain. And I have to be honest with you, all the fall training did for me was make me more afraid. And the crazy thing is, it actually wasn't until we got to this part of the climb that my fears subsided. And believe it or not, the fear went away through me falling through me actually losing my footing and having my team hold me up, through the experience of the rope actually catching me, just as our guide said it would. Church, in the midst of all that's going on right now, I have to ask you, who is on your line? No doubt the storm is raging all around us. Who is with you in this storm? Who is watching over you? Not to keep you from falling, but to hit the deck when you fall and to hold you until you're able to get back up. Church, now more than ever, we need to be connected to one another so that we can weather the storm. At the same time, I hope you know that having some good people on your line isn't enough. No doubt my teammates on that climb provided great confidence for me along the way, but the reality is, apart from the guide, apart from the expert who led the way, I would have never truly felt safe. You see, because I knew that my guide was one who had already made it to the summit and who had came back down to help ensure that I would in turn make it to the top. And ultimately, way more than my teammates, I put my trust in her. Church, Hebrews 12 serves as a powerful reminder that our guide, Jesus Christ, made it to the summit, that he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And through his resurrection, as we talked about last week, he has proven that salvation belongs to him. And therefore, because of the resurrection, we can trust Jesus when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, but the hard part about all of this is that just like my mountain guide and our fall training couldn't prove to me that I would be safe if I fell, I can't prove to you that if you put your trust in God that he will in fact deliver you from the storms of life. And yet I take comfort in the fact that that's not what the Psalms are all about. Eugene Peterson gives some really helpful insight here. He says, the Psalms exist not to argue God's help, nor they, do they exist to explain God's help, but rather they are a testimony of God's help in the form of a song. As Peterson po points out, our, 
as pastors, we're often asked to explain God to his disappointed clients. We are thrust into the role of a clerk in the complaints department of humanity, asked to trace down bad service, listen sympathetically to aggrieved patrons, try to put to write any mistakes I can and apologize for the rudeness of the management. And yet the truth is, it's, it's actually not my job to defend God, nor does he need me to defend him. But rather, the proper work of the Christian is, quote, witness, not apology. Which is exactly what David is doing here in Psalm 3. He isn't trying to prove God's character through a well-laid-out defense, but rather he is bearing witness to the goodness of God that he has experienced in his life through a song. And may I be so bold as to do the same this morning, minus the singing part. I can't prove to you that God's salvation is sure. But I can testify to the fact that my God has been a shield for me. That he has been the lifter of my head, that he has heard my cries and answered them over and over and over again. And because of that, I am confident that my salvation belongs to him. And I truly believe that he will rescue me in the end. And it's in light of that that I charge you, church, like David, to acknowledge your fears to God. To turn your face away from the storm and turn your face toward his And the result will be that you, like me, will find yourself singing a new song. A song that is not about the thrill that is gone, but rather about that sweet chariot that is coming for to carry us home. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are present in the storm. That The storms of life are not evidence that you are distant, that you are away, but that we can trust that in the darkest hours you are most near. And Father, I ask that you would meet us in that place, that you would teach us to turn our gaze away from the storm and to your face, and that we would have great confidence and hope in you, in the midst of life's storms. God, teach us how to find peace in the storm and that peace in you. In Jesus' name.